the beloved, the anointed of Yahweh. My dear brethren and sisters, and my dear young people, in the mercy of God is going to be a wonderful privilege afforded unto us in the next few days to go back in history and to live in the past. To live in the past, brethren and sisters and young people, when, when men were men. When men were really men. Something of this age rarely produces. And it's going to do our hearts and our minds good to go back over the centuries and to move around the confines of, the, of Israel and beyond with the beloved, the anointed of Yahweh, the man after God's own heart, David. And this study, brethren and sisters, which we are going to undertake, is a massive one. It covers the best part of the books of Samuel. And we would not be in any way at all be able to cover this by way of exposition. It would be utterly impossible to do so. For the issues which arise out of this story are so gigantic that it would take us many moons to expand this wonderful theme. For the life of David, brethren and sisters and young people, forms an immense part of the word of God, not simply the record of his life, but the shadows which it cast, which later on were illuminated with the coming of the Son of Righteousness. And also the things which went before in preparing the way for David, that from time immemorial God had been preparing for the manifestation of his son, yes, and of David himself. And he came upon the history of Israel to give us a story which has thrilled the hearts of many people, has been an exhortation to young people and old people for centuries, and has given us, brothers and sisters, a pattern whereby we are able to see even better the characteristics of the Lord Jesus Christ himself as they were shown in this man after God's own heart. He was a wonderful character and one which we could do great profit to study. And what we intend to do, brethren and sisters and young people, is this, just to tell you the story of David. Nothing more, nothing less. But to tell you the story of David, as you have known it from the time that you went to Sunday school. And I suppose the best part of what we're going to tell you, you all know. But what we hope to do is to draw these word pictures from the record of David that you with us might be able to transport yourselves from this city into the land of Israel and move with him, brethren and sisters, and not only move with him, but to be moved by him and to see the characteristics that come shining out of him as he imbibed the power of this book. And not only that, we're going to see a lot of other characters too. Some well known and some not so well known. And we hope as we go through this story to pause here and there and to comment upon some of the characters that are in the record of David's life. And they're all here. They're all in ecclesial life, brethren and sisters. You meet them on every hand. They're all with us the characters that David met. And we're going to see, I believe, some wonderful things by way of exhortation. There are characters that's going to thrill us. There are characters that are going to disappoint us. There are characters that's going to horrify us. But they're all here. They're all 
with us. And the remarkable thing is that when you get down and study the life of David, brethren and sisters, you recognize those characters. And not only do you see them as individuals, but you see nearly all of them in yourself. And you see in yourself the David sometimes, really. Sometimes the Jonathans. Sometimes the Ahithophels. And the Abners, the Joabs, the Abishais, the Aphahels, the Hushais, and so on. You see them all, brethren and sisters, coming out of this record, and you see them reflected in your own life, and you see them reflected in the life of others. And as you review your own life in respect of these characters, so you have a measuring stick as to your own progress towards the kingdom of God. And as we tell this story over the next few days, I want, brethren and sisters and young people, your utmost cooperation, not only in listening to what I've got to say, because as I said before, many of, much of what I've got to say, you know. What I want your cooperation is in using your imagination to transport yourself into that land, to walk with us and to see the events and to enter into the feeling of the occasion that we may be stimulated together by the power of the word of God. And in this respect, I've got a head start over many of you because I've been through that land and have stood in the very spot, some of them, where David stood and have been able to drink out of the very ground itself the history, brethren and sisters, which is indelibly written there for all those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. And we testify that the God of David is a living God and that God is not a God of the dead but of the living and that David will stand again upon the earth. And as we live with him over these next few days, pray God, brethren and sisters, that the inspiration so gained will be so powerful in our lives that we'll live with him in the future. And our chances of doing that in this age are as slender as you could possibly imagine. Our chances of living with David forever, brethren and sisters and young people, in this age are the slenderest perhaps that's ever been offered to any son or daughter of God. And that's the seriousness of the issue that is before us as we settle down to this study. And as we go through this, this story, I want to try and impress upon the young people in particular the horrors of this age up in which they are growing. I don't think there's anybody alive in the truth today that really appreciates the desperate situation that Christadelphia is in today as the world presses heavily upon us, brothers and sisters, and is making its inroads into the ecclesia of God. And I don't want to dwell upon the negative aspect of this, those sort of things. But what I want to do is this, to so inspire us with the life of this man, that we shall be determined when we dispense our several ways at the end of this study, that we're going to be determined to take our courage in our hands and to be scrupulously honest as David was and act for God and on behalf of God in every circumstance of life that, upon which comes which come upon us and to have the courage to be different. And that's the great challenge of the truth today. The courage to be different from this world. And we're losing it. But David never lost that, brethren and sisters. He stood head and shoulders above all who were surrounded him. Head and shoulders he stood above them. Because he was scrupulously honest in his approach to God. And because he went straight down the line. And he never deviated to this side of the fence or to that side of the fence. He never listened to anybody but God. And he went straight down that line. And he stood head and shoulders above his contemporaries. And yet he never tried to do that. 
He never tried to be king. He just got there, brethren and sisters. It was inevitable that he come there by the virtue of the very fact of what he was in the service of the truth. Now, how can we impress upon ourselves the importance of the study upon which we're going to engage? What reference could we choose, brethren and sisters, as an introduction to this beautiful study in order that the Bible itself might impress it by its own language the importance of this study? Well, look, I don't believe there's a reference in the, anywhere in the Scripture that we could choose better than the 22nd chapter of Revelation and verse 16 amongst the very last words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's he saying? In the 27th, 22nd chapter of Revelation and in verse 16. Now listen to this. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the ecclesias. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and the morning star. Now listen to that, brethren and sisters. Having given the last message to John in Patmos, you imagine that the Lord Jesus Christ dictating this message, every word would be full of meaning. And so he's about to issue his final words. And he says, look, I, Jesus, have sent and testified these things in the Ecclesia. And who does he identify himself with? And he's at the very last I am the root and the offspring of David. And brethren and sisters, that in itself ought to impress us with the importance of the subject we're going to study. But look what it's saying. Look what he's saying. He's not saying that he's the offspring of David only, brethren and sisters. He's saying he's the root and the offspring of David. That's a contradiction in terms. That's a contradiction in terms. He's saying in effect that he was the seed of David according to the flesh but before David ever was, I am. For not only was he the offspring of David, brethren and sisters, he was the root of David. What's he telling us? He's telling us just this. That in the story of David we have a magnificent story of a man who typified, foreshadowed, the Son of God himself. But a man who only came upon the scene because God intended from the very beginning that his Son should come into the world and be the light of the world and be the manifestation of the Father and should be taken up on high and should be the high priest of his profession and the king of the, over, over, the, over the kingdom in the age to come. But these things were before David ever was so that the Lord Jesus Christ said, I'm his root. But he says, I'm also his offspring. And that's how he finishes the book of Revelation. Telling us that important fact. And Paul tells us this in Romans. That he was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. But determined to be the son of God. Through the spirit of holiness. By the resurrection from the dead. Made of the seed of David according to the flesh. The offspring of David. But, brethren and sisters, determined to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead, the root of David. And there's David in between, typifying the Lord Jesus Christ. And where is the Lord Jesus Christ getting this idea from of being the root of the offspring of David? He's taking it from the 11th chapter of Isaiah. Have a look at this. And here in a remarkable prophecy of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
the life of David is brought before us again very vividly in the 11th chapter of Isaiah and the prophet says and there shall come forth a rod or a shoot out of the stem or the stock of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots and the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and of understanding the spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of Yahweh he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes neither shall he reprove after the hearing of his ears but with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth and he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of, the, of his lips shall he slay the wicked and there shall come forth says Isaiah a little shoot out of a stump of Jesse brethren and sisters there was going to come a little shoot out of the stump of Jesse. And that little shoot was going to, going to become the branch, the man whose name is the branch. And he was going to become the foundation of God's kingdom. And he was going to grow up out of the stump of Jesse. We can understand that. We can see a shoot growing out of the, out of the stump of a tree and we can see how that this, typifies, this speaks of him as being the offspring of David for Jesse was the father of David. But then we read in verse 10 or verse 9 they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea and in that day there shall be a root of Jesse which will stand for an ensign of the people to it shall the Gentiles seek and his rest shall be glorious Oh yes, brethren and sisters, not simply a little, little shoot growing out of the stump of a tree. Not simply that, that, but he was going to be the root of Jesse. He was that was going to be which has produced Jesse. This is the reason for the whole plan and purpose of God, pivoting on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the focal centre of God's, of God's creation, brethren and sisters. And God says, I will make him my firstborn, higher than the kings of the earth, Psalm 89. Make him my firstborn. And even though he came later in history than David, yet it could be truly said in the scriptural terminology of things, before David was, I am. And there was the root of Jesse. But notice this. That when he's called the branch out of the stock of Jesse, it speaks about him of being quick understanding in the fear of the, of the Lord. It speaks about him establishing the kingdom, brethren and sisters. But when it speaks about him being the root of Jesse... It is talking about a time when the glory of Yahweh shall cover the earth as the waters cover the sea and when the Gentiles shall seek Yahweh. And who was it that produced Jesse? There are two outstanding women, brethren and sisters, that are recorded in the oracles of God that were on the earth long before Jesse and they were Rahab the harlot and Ruth the Moabitess. Both prescribed and rejected by the law of Moses. But they were the ones that produced Jesse. And the root of Jesse is he in whom the Gentiles are going to trust. And so the Lord Jesus Christ in the 22nd chapter of Revelation in speaking about the life story of David tells us that there's more in that story than meets the eye. For that in the life story of David, brethren and sisters, we have a cameo of the whole purpose of God 
in which Jew and Gentile shall meet together. And as in the life story of David, there is prefigured for us the time when the glory of Yahweh shall cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And in that day, the Gentiles will put their trust in him. And there is the importance of the subject before us. And long ago the prophet said, O thou Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from time immemorial, have been of old, or from time immemorial. And so calling him out of Bethlehem, brethren and sisters, old Bethlehem, the house of bread, a little village in the thousands of Judah, out of thee he's going to come forth to me, who's not only going to be ruler of my people Israel, oh no, not only that, but his goings forth have been from time immemorial. And there again the prophet Micah combined the two ideas. David was king of Israel, but as David progressed, brethren and sisters, from the fields of Bethlehem to the throne of Israel, he foresaw the Lord always before his face. In the words of Samuel, David perceived. In the words of Peter, he seeing this before. In the words of the psalm, being a prophet, he saw all these things. And as he lived the life that he did, fighting his foes, loving his friends, trying to calm the nation down, trying to win men to God, as he did all those things, surrounded by friend and by foe alike, brethren and sisters, being hunted like a flea, lorded like a king, he never lost sight of this fact that the Lord was always before his face. And in everything that he did, as he came to the throne of Israel, he deliberately set about setting down a pattern that all may see the grand and the glorious purpose of the Creator that in the hearts of all men and women he was going to be acknowledged and loved and that the knowledge of the Lord shall cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. David never saw that fulfilled in his own lifetime. He constantly strove, brethren and sisters, that in some small measure he might realise that ideal while he was on the throne of Israel. And it was the dominating influence of his life And as we go through this man's life, we're going to see that the dominating influence of his life was the fact that the glory of Yahweh could cover the earth and that David himself was a very small and insignificant part of the purpose of God. And he always subordinated himself to that purpose. And that is going to be the theme of our study together. And we're going to move with him through the record of Samuel. And let's look at the record of Samuel, brethren and sisters, in the 16th chapter. Verse 1. Yahweh said to Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul? seeing I have rejected him. And you know, brethren and sisters, there's a great pathos in those words. You see, when we come to study this record of David, we're going to see these characters perhaps, not so much, I suppose, in a different light, but there are certain things about the lives of these men that we may not be altogether aware of. Now, look, do you know that it broke Samuel's heart to reject Saul? And you know, brethren and sisters, when you come to study the life of Saul... 
there were some admirable qualities in that man. And you know something else? David deeply loved him. I believe sincerely loved him. And I believe also, brethren and sisters, in his own way, that Saul deeply and sincerely loved David. And this comes out of that record the more you go into it. And in Saul's saner moments, the man was broken-hearted over the rift that had developed between him and David, although he fully recognised that he was the chief cause of it. But there were some admirable qualities in this man Saul. Qualities that caused men in after years to do some remarkable things, even though that man, brethren and sisters, had been rejected by God. And knowing that he'd been rejected by God and falling into the slough of despond and despair and letting black jealousy overcome him, even though those things had dogged his life, there were men who were prepared to lay down their life for Saul because he did show some admirable qualities. And if ever there was a man that recognised the good qualities that Saul did have and could have developed, it was Samuel. And when Samuel left Saul, when he had indicted him for not slaying the Amalekites, and Saul had grabbed hold of his garment because he realised the enormity of what he had done, and the garment ran away from him, but Samuel turned on him and told him that Yahweh would rend the kingdom from him and said that the strength of Israel will never go back on that and made Saul understand that the strength of Israel would never go back on that. That was the word he used. As if that God was not going to be talked out of this. He was strong, Saul. He's not going to go back on that. And those words, brethren and sisters, went into the vitals of Saul. Don't ever imagine for a moment that they didn't have any effect upon him. They did. I don't believe that they ever left him. And when you go through that record, those are the words that burn into his mind. That the strength of Israel won't go back on it, Saul. You're finished. Finished, Saul. And you know, when he was before the witch of Endor, speaking to what he believed was Samuel, he says, I know that God has left me. And that was the thing, brethren and sisters, that caused him to go the course that he did. Because he understood that God had left him. And the tragedy of it was that he didn't have to be in that situation. And you know, Samuel left him on that occasion and never saw him again. Never saw him again. And yet when God comes to Samuel and says, what are you doing? How long will you mourn for Saul? And you can see the feeling that was engendered in that aged man Samuel, brethren and sisters. As he saw it didn't have to be this way. Well, you see, this is what we've got to get into our minds. What was the basis of Saul's rejection? He wasn't rejected, brethren and sisters, because he was jealous of David. He wasn't rejected because he was willful and rash. He wasn't rejected because he had a black heart. Those things are natural to all of us. One thing had rejected him. He was reminded at the, at the end here when he was rejected, and he was reminded again that before the, the, the night before he died, he was, it was spelled out to him in no uncertain terms. Because you have rejected the word of Yahweh, Yahweh hath rejected you. And if Saul was rejected, brethren and sisters, for the baser instincts that he had in his body, then every person in this hall is rejected from the same basis. He was. He was rejected because he failed to accept the only means to overcome those baser instincts. He rejected that book. And that's going to be our condemnation. 
And that's why Saul mourned for him. Samuel mourned for him rather. And that's why David mourned for him. Because he didn't have to go in that course. If he had taken hold of that book, brethren and sisters, and understood it, and it allowed it to be a power in his life, then those baser instincts, which are characteristic of all flesh, would never have been manifested in the way that they were. But he rejected the word, the only means to salvation. Yahweh rejected him, and he made him to understand it in no uncertain manner that he, he meant exactly what he said, that was it. He would never go back on it, and that, brethren and sisters, drove Saul into insanity. It drove him into insanity. And the insanity which swept over Saul came upon him long before David had ever influenced his life in, the, in respect to jealousy. Before David had ever come into Saul's life and jealousy had swept over him, brethren and sisters, the grim foreboding had already gripped that man's mind and he was going towards the blackness of insanity because those words were ringing in his ears. The strength of Israel will never go back, Saul. You'll think. And that dogged him. And brethren and sisters and young people, that dogs are. And these are the things we need to get into our mind. What's the result of despondency and despair? What's the cause of all our ills, our ailments, our troubles? What's the cause of our bad tempers? What is it? We will not bow down to the majesty of that book. We refuse to listen to what that book says. And we are determined when things go our own way when there is an exhortation given, we know it's right, but we've got not the slightest intention of doing anything about it because it hurts. And we'll do everything else. Won't do that. And as long as we continue in that vein of mind, brethren and sisters, then we're going to be like Saul, driven on that inevitable course to insanity. Insanity of the flesh which will get us out of the kingdom of God. And Samuel mourned for that. Look, God says, fill your horn with oil and go to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king amongst his sons. Fill your horn with oil. What do you think that means? God was going to provide himself another king, brethren and sisters, going to succeed with this one at Baal. He was to fill his horn with oil. And of course, we point out to our Sunday school scholars, but it was the custom in those days to have the, a ram's horn or a horn of any animal and to fill that up with the holy anointing oil and to pour it over the head of those who were to be appointed kings and priests in the service of Yahweh. But what did it mean? Well, it's so obvious. You've only got to take the word, the word horn and the word oil, run them through the, through the scriptures, and you come up with a very simple answer. Because a horn, brethren and sisters, is a symbol of power. You look at wherever it's found. We won't bother to prove it. You look at wherever that word is found. It's a symbol of power. And oil is a symbol of the word. And the simple formula for success was, go and find a man in whom is the power of the word. And he'll do what I want him to do. And that was the simple, basic formula. Go and find a man with the power of the word, Samuel. Anoint him. And I'll point him out to you. And now you watch how he walks in life. And see the power that dictates his death. And what's the difference between him and Saul. And that was the simple formula for success. 
You know, brethren and sisters and young people, you've, you've read on several occasions how that when, when men were seeking mercy, they used to race in and ho- grab hold of the horns of the altar. And there was a, a, one horn in the four corners of the altar. And each, on each corner of the altar there was a horn. And in the 118th Psalm, the psalmist said that they were to bind the sacrifices with cords to the horns of the altar. What did that mean? Well, the horn was a symbol of power. And because it was attached to the altar, which was a, which was a symbol of sacrifice, there was the power of God to forgive or not to forgive under the law of Moses. And so when you took a sacrifice to the altar, the very fact that the horns were there testified to you that God had the power to forgive sins. And if you could bind your sacrifice with a strong cord to the horns of the altar, you were making a passionate appeal for mercy that the power of God might be manifest in your life. Joab grabbed hold of the horns of the altar and they killed him there. He's bidden find mercy. Simple. He never showed it to anybody else. But you know, Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, in speaking of the coming of his own son and of the one that would follow him, said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath raised up unto us a horn of salvation in the room of his father David, as all the holy prophets have prophesied since the world began. So that the Lord Jesus Christ was raised up, brethren and sisters, as a power for salvation. In what room? In the room of his father David. So the Apostle Paul testifies that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes it. Whether he be Jew or Greek. And that was David's principle, brethren and sisters. As he went throughout the land of Israel, he said this, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to whoever believes it, irrespective of whether he's on my side today or whether he's a member of those who oppose me today, whether he's a Hittite or an Israelite. It wouldn't matter who he was. If he believed the word of God and the power of the word was residing in him, he could be saved. And that was David's mind on the matter. And so when Samuel took that horn of oil to anoint that son of Jesse in the fields of Bethlehem, brethren and sisters, that was what was signified. Nothing more, nothing less. That the power of the word was going to be seen in active manifestation in that man's life. And it was. And he was a man after God's own heart. As the record of Samuel testifies and as Paul says in Acts 13. And you know, it was Jeremiah the prophet who said, that a governor should arise to Israel from among their own people. The governor should arise from among their own people and speaking of the, of the manifestation of Christ. And then the prophet asks the question, and who is this, he says, that engages his heart to approach unto me? And here was a prophecy of the coming of the Christ, that he was going to engage his heart to approach unto God. And the word engage, brethren and sisters, means to entangle. And there was one who was going to come out of Israel who was going to entangle his heart with the heart of the Lord God of Israel so that the two of them would be brought together like that. They locked together because their hearts were tangled up together. And he was going to come out of Israel and he was going to be the Lord Jesus Christ. And there was a man who typified him. And he was a man after God's own heart. And David's heart became all tangled up with the heart of the Lord God of Israel, brethren and sisters, so that they became welded together like that. And wherever he walked in that land, he inquired of Yahweh. Wherever he went, he prayed. 
Whatever he did, he acknowledged God in all his ways and his heart was all tangled up with the heart of Yahweh. Inseparable. And that was the life that that man lived. And when you talk about a heart being tangled up with, it, with, with Yahweh, brethren and sisters, the heart was the seat of intelligence for the Jew, which dictated to the emotions. Although the kidneys was used as a symbol of the emotions. And David speaks of all these things in the Psalms. He speaks about his heart, which is tangled up with Yahweh's heart. He speaks about his kidneys, the emotions, which were so affected by this entanglement that he thought and did those things which were well-pleasing unto his father. And he was a man after God's own heart. And so Samuel is told to go down to Bethlehem and anoint this young fellow. But he was frightened. He was frightened. Saul's power, brethren and sisters, was in evidence. It wasn't safe. It wasn't safe to do things which could be taken to mean that you were moving to overthrow the government. And Samuel was frightened and so God said to him, well, look, you take an heifer and go down to the, to the house of Jesse and call the sons of Jesse and whom I will show unto you, you will anoint him. And so here comes Samuel down to Bethlehem. Now, he didn't usually go to Bethlehem. He lived at Ramah. He lived up here in Ramah. My mom would know, but I think no. In this area here. And he only used to go to three centres. He used to go to Bethel. He used to go over to Mizpah. And he used to go to Gilgal. And he used to do that in a circuit. He wasn't used to going to Bethlehem. And all of a sudden, the elders of Bethlehem, they see a man approaching, Samuel, out of his circuit, and he's got a heifer. And it says that they tremble. Verse 4, they tremble in his presence. And they said, comest thou peaceably? Or they frightened of well, I think, brethren and sisters, that they, first of all, were wondering why this, on earth this judge, this prophet, this priest was out of his original circuit. He moved away from that circuit. He was approaching the city of Bethlehem and he had a heifer with him. And under the law of Moses, when you brought a heifer to a city, if a priest brought a heifer to a city, it was a sign that a murder had been committed in that city. For what they did with a heifer, when a, murder was, was, uh, when a person was found to be murdered in the open field by any city, and no one had been taken, no one had been found guilty, then they would bring a heifer to that city, the elders of the city would hold their head, a hand upon the head of the heifer, they would confess that as far as to the best of their knowledge, nobody in that city was guilty. And then that heifer would have its neck broken. No blood was shed, because, brethren and sisters, nobody was found to be guilty. And the, and the very fact that the heifer died, a bloodless death, was a testimony that if that murder was in that city, and they knew about it, that one day blood would be shed and it would be there. So we can understand that as this priest approached out of his circuit toward the city with a heifer, they would say to him, what's wrong? What's wrong? Nothing, he says. <laughs> Worry, think all right. Just call a feast. And a feast they called. And you know the story as well as I do. And to that feast came Jesse and his sons. As they were invited, they sanctified themselves and they came and they were going to partake of a peace offering. And at that feast of peace offering, brethren and sisters, presided over by Samuel, the, the anointed of Yahweh was going to be chosen. And the story goes, how that Eliah, my God, or my, uh, God is my father, Eliah, the man who looked like a king, strode into the scene and Samuel there thinking to himself, my word, what a beautiful specimen of humanity. God is my father. That's what the Jews said in the 8th chapter of John, but they couldn't prove it. Neither could Eliah. And Yahweh said, I don't want him, Samuel. And then, of course, they follow Abinadab. 
father of generosity, he comes in. No, I don't want him, Samuel. Shammah comes in. Ruin or consternation, his name means. No, I don't want him either, Samuel. And so one after the other, the seven sons of Jesse pass before Samuel, and lo and behold, not one of them are picked. So Samuel thinks, well, this is a peculiar setup. I'm sent down here to get one out of the house of Jesse. There they go, and I still haven't got one. And he says to Jesse, well, look, is there anybody left? Oh, yeah. There's a little fellow out in the paddock, the youngest, and he's keeping the sheep. Get him. What? Get him. Yes, but he's the, I don't care. Get him. And you see, brothers and sisters, as far as Jesse was concerned, he never thought to invite that boy. For he believed that Yahweh looked on the outward appearance and not on the heart. He is wrong. He doesn't. And you know what? We think Yahweh looks on the outward appearance too. But you know what? We're wrong. He doesn't. He looks straight through you. He looks straight through us, brothers and sisters. And if ever anybody ought to have understood that, it ought to have been Israel. Because every time they brought a sacrifice, as this, on this occasion in particular, when that sacrifice was brought, being a peace offering, they made a special point with the peace offering, as they did with all offerings, but under the peace offering, this was emphasised more than anything else, they made a special point of opening up that animal to find the fat that surrounded the inward portions of the animal. Not the, the superfluous fat, which a lot of us carry, but the fat, brethren and sisters, which surrounded the vital organs of the animal. They looked for that. And they took it out of the centre of the animal and before anybody got any part of that peace offering, that was put upon the altar and burnt first of all. Nobody touched it until that was gone. And that fat represented, brethren and sisters, the inward purity which man could not see and that was what Yahweh wanted. They'd just eaten that sacrifice and yet they thought that a man like Eliab could be king. But out in the fields of Bethlehem there was one that within his heart Within his heart was God's law. As Psalm 40 said, brethren and sisters, thy law is within my heart. The word is there intestines. Thy law is within my intestines. And he had it out in, that, in the fields of Bethlehem. But as far as they were concerned, don't bother calling him. Waste of time. Well, he's only keeping the sheep. Keeping the sheep? Not only was he only keeping the sheep, brethren and sisters, but in the words of Eliab later on in, the chapter, in chapter 17, they were just a few sheep keeping a few sheep in the fields of Bethlehem. But it was the very act of keeping those sheep, brothers and sisters, that had developed in David the thing that God wanted. And time and time again, when David came to the throne of Israel, God reminded him and the people reminded him that it was the very fact of keeping those few sheep in the fields of Bethlehem that had developed in him the very thing that God wanted. And there they were all parading around looking for the kingship. Not that they understood this, of course, at this stage, but they knew that some great appointment was, a, was ahead, looking for advancement, but failing to have the necessary characteristics. But they were out there in that field. He was keeping the sheep. Look at Psalm 78, brethren and sisters. Psalm 78 and verse 70. He chose David also his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the ewes, great with young, he brought him to feed or to shepherd Jacob his people 
and Israel his inheritance. So he fed them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. Now what a beautiful phrase that is, brethren and sisters. So he fed them according to the integrity of his heart and he was a man after God's own heart. And God feeds us, brethren and sisters, according to the integrity of his heart. And what sort of a flock has God got in this age and generation? Parents. Very, very few. Very, very few. Wouldn't attract anybody's attention. But God cares for us, brethren and sisters, through the great shepherd. And here was David presented to Samuel's attention as being one who kept a few sheep out of the fields of Bethlehem. But Psalm 78 says, that was the greatest trading ground ever. And here's something for you to think about. On the first time that David comes before us in the record of the, of the scripture, we're finding him keeping his father's sheep. And the first time, brethren and sisters, that Saul comes on the record of the scripture, he's looking for his father's lost asses. He lost them. And the ass and the sheep, both of them, were symbols of Israel. And there's a reason why Saul lost them, which we'll see later on. He lost them and was looking everywhere and he had no idea where they'd gone. He didn't have the foggiest where to look for them. But that boy could have told you every one of those sheep. He knew the ewes who were great with young and he followed them. Followed them because he knew the time may come they were going to meet him. And he carried them in his bosom as Isaiah 40 said of the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew every one of them. And he kept those sheep, brethren and sisters, not for monetary gain only, but because he saw in them a symbol. He saw in them a symbol of the people of God. And the day come in the life of David, at the very end of the life of David, when the plagues of God were sweeping over the people for something which David felt that he had done. And his words to God were, what have these sheep done that they should deserve this? He'd never forgotten, brethren and sisters, the early training out of that field. And those were the things, the little things of life, that have built those splendid characteristics into the life of that man. And look, there's work for the people of God in this city. There's work for the people of God everywhere being shepherds over little flocks. And you know what? Nobody wants to do it. Nobody wants to do it. There's a queue to get on this platform. A queue to waiting. I can get plenty of people to take my speaking appointments. No trouble. They might be inexperienced, but they'll take it. But I can't find people to go and visit someone in hospital. I can't get anybody. The arranging brethren can't find brethren and sisters and young people to look after the aged and the sick and those who are wandering by the wayside. Nobody wants to go out in the fields of Bethlehem. They all think that this is the criteria for the kingdom of God. That's what Samuel thought. That's what Jesse thought. That's what Elias thought. And when it came to the fact that God, all Jesse's sons been there, they had to think twice as to whether there was another son. Oh, yes. There's a little lad. He's out in the field looking after a few sheep. Kidding. Let's learn that lesson, brethren and sisters, if we learn nothing else at the start of this study. Let's learn that lesson. And let it not be said of us that we stand head and shoulders above our brethren. The very epitome of manhood, the envy of everybody else, the pride of the ecclesia, and all Yahweh's asses wandering around aimlessly in the world lost. And that was the difference between those two men. 
There was a fundamental difference. And when he came in, beautiful description of him, we get in verse 12 of chapter 16. He was ruddy. The word means, the word is Adam. It means to be full of blood, actually, to be flushed in the face. And the word is used of the one who was healthy. He was healthy, brethren and sisters. And he had a beautiful countenance. And as the margin rightly renders that phrase, he had bright eyes. And he was comely to look to, goodly to look to. Oh, he didn't look perhaps as strong and as powerful as his elder brother Eliab. He perhaps didn't have a kingly aspect about him, but he had the things, brothers and sisters, even on, even on his external appearance, which weren't put there deliberately. They weren't practiced, but they were things imbibed by his, by his surroundings. And so being out on the open fields, he was naturally healthy. He was healthy. He was a hardy person. He was used to hardship. He wasn't a softie. He was healthy and strong, brethren and sisters, and he had bright eyes. We don't know what size his shoulders were. We don't know how high he was. Although, let's, let's understand this, he was not, he was not a weak-looking person. The word stripling doesn't mean that. It means a person of no account. I believe, brethren and sisters, David was quite, quite a well-proportioned fellow. If he was not, why on earth would they try and put Saul's armour on him and Saul stood hidden shoulders above his presence? But this was not the thing that struck Samuel. The thing that struck Samuel was his eyes. His eyes struck Samuel. And the Lord Jesus Christ said, the light of the body is the eye. And if your eye is single, the whole body is illuminated. But if that eye is not single, brethren and sisters, then the light that is in the body is darkness, not light at all. And the thing that struck Samuel about David was the brightness of his eyes. And this boy was one who was illuminated. And you know what? He had done many things. To this point, at this very point, he had done many things which had renowned him in the nation. Long before he killed Goliath, he was known. He was known in Israel, this boy. And his father hadn't recognised this, evidently. His father hadn't recognised these qualities, as he should have done. But this boy was known everywhere, as we'll see in a moment, by the very things that he did. And the fame of him was already abroad, brethren and sisters. Even though it was according to his family, well, he was, you know, out in the fields looking after sheep. And we read in verse 13 that Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And the spirit of Yahweh came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So he anointed him in the midst of his brethren, as the Lord Jesus Christ who was anointed in the midst of his brethren. Why was he anointed in the midst of his brethren, brethren and sisters? You know, the Apostle Paul in the book of Hebrews takes that section of Scripture. Of course, it's taken in the 45th Psalm. Taken from the 45th Psalm into the first chapter of Hebrews. And the Lord Jesus Christ is anointed in the midst of his brethren. Why? The reasons are given. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, has anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And here he is, coming out of the field. Hello, Eliab. Hello, Shema. Hello, Abinadad. What am I wanted for? Anointing Samuel, this is he. And he goes over and anoints him in the midst of his brethren. And you can imagine the amazement of the congregation. You can imagine the amazement of David. And the reason he got anointed was he loved righteousness. And he hated iniquity. 
Therefore God, his God, anointed him with the oil of gladness. And I want you to note, brethren and sisters, as I quoted verbatim from Psalm 45 and Hebrews chapter 1, I want you to note this fact. And note it quickly. The Lord Jesus Christ didn't hate iniquity and love righteousness. He loved righteousness and hated iniquity. You say, what's the difference? The difference is enormous. And as we go through the life of David, you're going to see the difference. And a Christadelphian, brethren and sisters, a true brother of Christ, is not one who engages in ecclesial politics and who likes to talk behind a whispered hand about the weakness of others and how he hates their iniquity. A true Christadelphian, brethren and sisters, is not one who seeks to be known and to be famous in the congregation because he can stand up better than others. That person may hate iniquity. They may also not love righteousness. All we've got to do in this life, simple formula, is to love righteousness. And that's what David did and that's what the Lord Jesus Christ did. It'll follow, brethren and sisters, automatically that we'll hate iniquity. And note the order in which that's put. He loved righteousness and he hated iniquity. And that was the reason Samuel was, that David was chosen. And it was out of this event, I believe, that Psalm 45 came. And it was out of Psalm 45 that Hebrews 1 came. And there was the root and the offspring of David before us. And he was the anointed of Yahweh. And the Spirit of Yahweh came upon him. Isaiah 11 said that. The Spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him to make him of quick understanding in the fear of Yahweh. And there was the Spirit of Yahweh came upon this one, brethren and sisters. And we read in the very next verse that the Spirit of Yahweh departed from Saul. And the two men began to drift apart. And what made the difference? Personalities? Was it personalities that made the difference between David and Saul? Those two men loved each other. Saul broke his heart when David went out of the cave of Engedi. Is it thy voice, David, my son? Thou art more righteous than I. Is it thy voice, David, my son? And when David approached him, my Lord, my King, he called him. They're not empty words, brethren and sisters. They're not hypocritical words. If they were, Saul would have turned on him there and then. But sanity came for a moment and the two men stood there. They loved each other. This was not personalities. The thing that divided them was the spirit of Yahweh. That one wanted to study and understand and do what the Bible said and the other one didn't. And that was just the difference in the way they went on two different courses of action. Yet they loved each other. I don't think there's any question of that. There may not have been a scriptural love on the part of Saul, but affection there was. It says in the record he loved David greatly. And the difference between the two was the spirit of Yahweh. It came upon one and departed from the other. And it just closed in the thunder like that. And then Saul, brethren and sisters, slips into this deep depression. And you can only appreciate this feeling as we'll go with Saul on several occasions. Later on, we'll follow him across the plain of Jezreel. He goes through the, the ranks of the Philistines in the depths of night, and we'll see how really deep that spirit got into him. And all the time, grumping in his head, thumping in his head, Yahweh has rejected me. Yahweh has rejected me. The strength of Israel will never go back. And it was eating him out. And he slipped into a deep despair. And someone said, look, you need someone to play upon a harp. You want music. And as funny as that might sound to us, it's true. 
Music is very soothing. When Elisha wanted to prophesy, brothers and sisters, before he would even issue a prophecy on one occasion, he called the musicians. And in the frame of mind that music can develop, good music, note that, good music, the frame of mind that that can develop, sweet, beautiful music, is good. And so somebody suggested that David should come and play for him. Have a look at the description of David in verse 18. This is before he killed Goliath. Then answered one of the servants and said, Behold, I have seen the son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite. He is cunning in playing. He's a mighty, valiant man. He's a man of war. And he's prudent in matters. That phrase means he used discretion in his speech. And he was a comely person. And Yahweh is with him. And you imagine, brethren and sisters, King Saul sitting in the slough of despond with his heart fearful and afraid. Yahweh has rejected me. The strength of Israel will never go back. And someone comes and says, look, you need music. Now I know, don't I? Look, he's a wonderful musician. Not only that, he's a mighty and a valiant man. And he's a man of war. David, when had he been a man of war? We've we got no record of this, brethren and sisters, other than the fact that he slew a lion and a bear, events which must have been known, but they saw enough in this young boy to see these characteristics, and they said, this person uses great discretion in his speech, he's just a man to come before a king. And then words that would have gone through Saul like a red-hot knife, Yahweh is with him. And Saul would have thought, yes, Yahweh is with him. Would to God that Yahweh was with me. And he pleaded with Samuel, pray for me, Samuel, pray for me. The strength of Israel will never go back. And this was the boy that was going to come before him. One in whom, brethren and sisters, he would see every ideal that he strove for himself originally, but which he could never bend his will to accomplish. He could never bend that will to accomplish it. And Yahweh was with him. And before Saul he came and he played with his heart. And he soothed the jangled nerves of the king. He caused the spirit of depression to lift from off of him. Saul felt exalted in his presence. And the record says, he loved him greatly. He loved him greatly. Of course he'd love him greatly, brethren and sisters. He couldn't help it. Because the boy was the epitome of all the things that he himself would want to be. But he could never bring the flesh to into subjection to the power of God that the power of the word never had any impression upon him. And the rest of the 16th chapter goes on to describe, I believe, events which took place much later in David's life. How he became an armour bearer of Saul. How that he found great favour in the sight of Saul. How that on occasions when the Spirit of God passed from Saul that David was there to cause the mood of depression to be alleviated from him. A record which I believe is putting it there for our benefit, looking forward to things which were coming to give us a picture, an overall picture of how these two characters came together and how different they were and the reasons why they were different. But I believe, brethren and sisters, that what David did was originally come to Saul for a very short time. Then he would have went back to the fields of Bethlehem until the day came when from the plain of the Philistines the Philistines marched towards Israel and in their midst the lions of Gath. The hour was coming when the little boy of Bethlehem was going to brought before the attention of the Israelites, the Philistines and the world. And they were marching up, brothers and sisters, from the plain of the Philistines towards Jerusalem. Although Jerusalem was not then in the hands of the Saul, I'm saying they were marching in that direction. 
and from the plain of the Philistines to the hills of Judea. These are 3,000 feet high, brethren and sisters. The hills of the Shephelah are only about three to 500 feet high. There's a very steep descent up here, and it's very difficult to get into the hills of Judea from the plain to the Philistines. There are three great valleys which run up from the, east, from the west up to the east. They're the valley of Elah, the valley of Sorek, and the valley of Adjalon. And they all dissect the hills of Judea, leading up into the central highlands. And it was up one of those valleys that the Philistines marched. The valley of Elah, and we saw that valley, brothers and sisters. And you can stand there and look towards the west, towards the Mediterranean. And you see the direction from which the Philistines came, and they came to the prominence which overlooked the valley. And you can see how that Saul and his men would have come down from the east, and they would have come along the ridge of mountains, which came down to a place which overlooked the valley, and the two of them would have been there, reaching a stalemate, not daring to advance an inch further, knowing that whoever moved first lost the advantage. And so they were locked there, checkmated, for 40 days. And each day, a great massive hulk of humanity came out nine and a half feet high. Boy, was he impressive. He was covered in brass, brethren and sisters. Covered in brass. Just like the serpent of brass. And the word for serpent and the word for brass are cognate words. He was a snake of the tallest order. And he had in front of him a man who carried a shield and everything about him spoke of the flesh. The number six features prominently. The number six features very prominently in the weight of his armour. Six hundred shekels of iron. And there standing before the Israelites was Daniel's image. His form was terrible. And he was a manifestation of the flesh if ever you saw it. And he was standing on the side of the Philistines on the western side of the valley of Elah in a place between Shocho and Ezekiel in a place between the hedge of thorns and Ezekiel, which means to grub over. He was standing in a hedge of thorns, brethren and sisters, where they had to constantly grub it over. And between him was a place called Ethos Damin, which means the field of blood. And his name, Goliath, means the exile. And standing before Israel was a picture of the Garden of Eden after the fall. For there the earth had brought forth thistles and thorns, a curse of God which needed the sweat of man's face that he might live because of the curse of God. And there was the exile, Goliath, who was exiled from God because he was covered with the flesh and because the number of the beast was stamped upon him, the number of six. And there was Israel at a place called Elah, which means a strong tree. And they had on their side, if only they knew it, the tree of life. And there were the issues facing them. The issues of Eden. Staring them in the face. Was it going to be the curse of God? Or were they going to avail themselves of the tree of life? And into the camp came David. He was sent by his father to go to his brethren. And it was common in those days, brethren and sisters, that the standing army was fed by the government. Volunteers provided their own food. The brothers of David, the three of them who were there, were evidently volunteers. And from time to time, they had to be sent food. And on this occasion, David brings this food. And he happened to come there on the 40th day. And here this shepherd boy of Bethlehem, bubbling over with excitement, perhaps that he was in the midst of a battle, perhaps feeling a little bit uh, overcome with the situation, that he was amongst the armies of Israel, looking around him and seeing a flock of sheep and thinking, well, my word, wouldn't it be wonderful if uh, we could all understand how God was guiding him? And as he's talking, this great bellowing voice across the valley 
Oh, I, I can't get around to me. The very fact that Saul wanted to arm David in this way, brethren, this has proved that there wasn't a little fellow about this high. Saul, David must have been quite a good physique. He would have been, I believe, around about between 16 and 18 at this time. Take a note of that, young people, 16 to 18. And he couldn't understand why the ecclesia was a frightened of the world. He couldn't understand why the older brothers and sisters in the ecclesia were frightened of the world. It amazed this little boy of Bethlehem. Because he had a simple mind, he reasoned this way. He's not in the truth. We're in the truth. He's in the flesh, and we are the armies of the living God. What's going on here? That was the simple mind of this boy. We know the story. He went out. Five smooth stones. The number of grapes. The sling and the shepherd's bag. In which he used to keep the implements which would help his sheep, brethren and sisters. Remembering the day when Yahweh overthrew the bear and the lion. And away he went. And as he came out, Goliath cursing him by his God. And David, that would have been a delight into David's ear. And you can imagine this stripling running down off the hills on the eastern side. The beloved of Yahweh was a strong tree going to face the exile in the field of blood. And as he raced towards him, brethren and sisters, and Goliath came stumbling across that plain, burdened down by his heavy arm with a great sword, ready to carve him up. And he cursed David by Dagon, the fish god. And that would have been music to David's ears. And David would have known that listening in the heavens, brethren and sisters, was Yahweh Elohim of armies. Listening in the heavens to this, as far as David was concerned, he couldn't have done a better thing because Goliath had brought this conflict into a different arena now. It had nothing to do with Goliath and David. The contest was between Dagon, the fish god, and Yahweh, the living God of Israel. That was a very unequal combat, brethren and sisters, and five smooth stones could have been atomic bombs in that situation. And so David went forward. He only wanted one stone. The outcome was inevitable with that sort of faith. But before David killed him, he put before the people three propositions. And I can imagine this boy, overcome with the situation. No egotism here. The outpouring of a pure heart as he put three things before them. Thou comest to me, he said, with a sword and with a spear and with a shield. I want everybody to understand that I'm coming in the name of Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you've defied. That was proposition number one. Let everybody understand my weapons of war. And then he said he was going to feed the carcass of Goliath and the Philistines and the fowls of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that would have went thundering down that valley, small as he may have been in comparison to Goliath. That would have went thundering down that valley that all the earth may know, this is Isaiah 11, that there is a God in Israel. They might all understand it. And then, brethren and sisters, in the middle of that plain, I can picture David pausing before he brought forth his third proposition and turning around. And all this ecclesia, never mind about the Philistines now, this assembly, in the Septuagint version, ecclesia, so they all might know that Yahweh saveth not with sword and spear, for the battle is Yahweh's. And he will give you into our hands. And with those three propositions ringing in the ears of the gathered men there, he went forth, slaying his stone, hit him in the forehead of all places. Down went the manifestation of the flesh. He put all things under his feet. 
pulled his sword out and cut off his head. And either then or later, took that head and put it in Jerusalem. And there, brethren and sisters, for all to know and to understand and see, in years to come, was the, one of the greatest manifestations of power ever seen. And this was the basis of it. One, that we go into battle, in, into life's battles, brethren and sisters, in the name of Yahweh of armies, being like Elisha in the city of Dothan, sitting back quite quiet and composed while his servant is shivering and shaking in fear because Elisha's looking all around him. And all he can see everywhere is a huge army. And quite composed, we go through life because we're not going into the battle alone. The contest is unequal, brethren and sisters. The power on our side is, is unlimited. And why do we go into the battle? And why do we go in? That all the earth may know there's a God in Israel. Not that all the earth may know there's a God in us. But that there's a God in Israel drawing attention to that fact. And that we might be an example to our brethren and sisters to teach them that Yahweh doesn't need the weapons of carnal warfare, nor does he need the might of flesh. For it's not by might, and it's not by power, but it's by my spirit, says Yahweh of armies. And if that's their motive, brethren and sisters, we've got nothing to fear. And off came the head of the manifestation of flesh, and this little pebble sunk into his forehead. And Paul tells us, brethren and sisters, to bring every thought to the obedience of Christ. And if you think Goliath presented a terrible picture to Israel, in all his manifestations of flesh, just go home and do a little bit of meditating about some of the things that you do in secret and see what a horrible picture that presents to you. And to see that this brain here, brethren and sisters, the terrible things it's capable of thinking, the horrible things it's capable of thinking, and think of its unlimited power if we let it to bring us into nothing and to be exiled from God. You think of it, brethren and sisters, and think of that little stone sinking into that forehead and bringing every thought to the obedience of Christ and cutting off the head of the flesh and laying it up in the city of Jerusalem where perhaps, I'm saying perhaps, it became the foundation of a place of a skull. And if that was the case, the Lord Jesus Christ took the greatest delight ever himself. Flesh. He'd overcome it all his life. He'd kept it and contained it, but it was alive. And he knew until it breathed its last, the battle would never be won. And so to the place of the skull he went, where he brought the last thought of the obedience of his father. And where the flesh expired, brothers and sisters, and its power was gone. And God says, I'm going to put all things under his feet. And he's the one that teaches us. Yahweh doesn't save by sword and by spear. For the battle is Yahweh. And they asked who he was that done this. Saul wanted to know. And he said to Abner, his uncle, Who's this, Abner? Saul knew David before this, brethren and sisters, but it's obvious by Saul's inquiry to Abner that he hadn't got full details of this boy. Or if that he had, he'd forgotten them. Or if he hadn't forgotten them, that he wanted to inquire further as to his father's house. Because this boy now was destined to be the son of Lord of the king if he was going to keep his promise. And so inquiring of Abner, as to who this boy was. Abner says, I don't know, and they called him. And the record says that when he had done speaking with Saul, evidently, brethren and sisters, that David spent a long time speaking to Saul, and perhaps laying before him his whole family history. And I want to finish tonight on a consideration, briefly, of another fellow who was listening, and who was profoundly affected by what David had done. 
And we read in the first of Samuel chapter 18 at verse 1. And it came to pass when he had made an end of speaking unto Saul, the soul of Jonathan was joined together with the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And there was a wonderful thing, brothers and sisters. And I want you to picture the scene of Saul the king and Jonathan his son and David coming off the battlefield and the little boy talking to, to Saul and passing the conversation and Jonathan there, brethren and sisters, listening to the gracious words that came from his mouth, absorbing them all and seeing the flashing eyes of this boy and seeing in him none of the egotism of the flesh, none of the manifestations of pride, but the very simplicity of faith of a little shepherd boy who couldn't understand why that nobody should go there and take that man's head off and just couldn't understand it simply because he had faith in God. There was no pride in this boy on this occasion. And Jonathan's soul became knit, the record says. It means joined together, entangled together, joined together with the soul of David. And he was attracted to him. Now, brethren and sisters, we have before us a character who bears some consideration. Because on this occasion, we read that the soul of Jonathan, he loved him as his own soul. Now, do you realise this? That Jonathan was Saul's firstborn. A younger son of Saul, Ishbosheth, was on the throne when David came king in Israel, and he was on the throne at the age of 40. And he was younger than Jonathan. And if we take the records together, we get this fact that Jonathan would have been at this, on this occasion somewhere in the vicinity of 40 years old. David would be barely 18 or 20, perhaps, the very elder, older. 20 at the very oldest. Here was a gap of over 20 years between these two men. And here was a man who was heir apparent to the throne. Nobody could stop him. He was next in line. And here was a boy, brothers and sisters, that had absolutely won his heart. A remarkable situation was now developing. Jonathan was a captain of a thousand. Saul and he had three in his standing army. He had 3,000 men in his standing army. Jonathan was a captain of one of those thousands. He had already proved himself a mighty man at Michmash when he had overthrown the Philistine garrison which was situated right in the middle of Israel. Why he didn't go and fight Goliath on this occasion, we'll never know. But he had already shown outstanding faith himself. And he was a man destined to do great things. He was a wonderful archer, brothers and sisters, and he was known in Israel for the use of the bow. As was a lot of his tribe, the Benjamites, they were remarkable for the use of the bow and the sling, as the first of Chronicles 12 says. And Jonathan was remarkable for the use of the bow as his father was a swordsman. And the bow became a symbol of Jonathan and the sword became a symbol of Saul. And there were two great men and they were listening to David. And his symbol? A sling. And there was a lesson. Yahweh saveth not with sword or with spear. For the battle is Yahweh. And as Jonathan listened to all this, he saw dawning before him, brethren and sisters, the new king of Israel. And you know something else? One of the most outstanding attributes which Jonathan showed throughout his life was his loyalty to his, to his father. Loyalty to his father, brethren and sisters, that bears, it bears in our own life that we should follow that example. Loyalty to his father when he knew his father was wrong, never agreeing with his father. Never holding forth the same principle. But brethren and sisters, he was never divided from his father. And when they sat down to meet, there was Saul and Jonathan. 
Abner and David. And those four became close, we did in the early days of Saul. It was Saul, it was Jonathan rather, who said to David, I'll tell you everything. My father tells me everything. He'll tell me everything. He told David. We told brethren and sisters that Jonathan loved his father. And even although his father had taken upon himself a course later on of hatred and animosity towards the man that Jonathan loved, and Jonathan knew that David was right, he never deviated from his course of loyalty. And in one of the most greatest laments, upon which I want to comment later on at length, and I want to deal with this properly, in one of the greatest laments that's ever been written in the history of man in the second of Samuel 1, David made this wonderful statement that Saul and Jonathan, both of them were lovely and pleasant in their lives. Now he doesn't mean that they were both lovely and pleasant in that, in that way, but the words lovely and pleasant mean that they were lovely to each other and they were united together. And there's a lesson for young people today who sniff at what their parents have got to say because we're square, some of us, because we don't know what we're talking about. There's a lesson for loyalty. And there was a boy, a man, 40 years old, that was never disunited from his father. And David said, in death they were not divided. And both of them, brethren and sisters, fell upon the mountains of Gilboa together. And Jonathan never was divided from his father. And did David say that he ought to be? Did David demand his allegiance from his father? Did David curse him for not following him? No, brethren and sisters. It brought from David a profound admiration for a loyalty that Saul didn't deserve. And it was Jonathan who was heir apparent to the throne and his father kept reminding him that as long as he loved David, that David was his only danger of the kingship. And in the first of Samuel chapter 20 and verses 30 and 31, he reminded this boy that David stood in his way of the kingship. And Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said unto him, Thou son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do not I know that thou hast chosen the son of Jesse to thine own confusion, and under the confusion of thy mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse liveth upon the ground, thou shalt not be established, nor the kingdom. Wherefore now send and fetch him unto me, for he will surely die. What an appeal, brethren and sisters. Look at the appeal. Jonathan, you dope. Foolish boy, you're like a mother. Oh, you're like a mother. Look, you've chosen this boy, Jonathan, to the confusion of your own soul, not mine, you foolish boy. Look, he says, as long as that boy breathes on the ground, Jonathan, you won't get the kingdom. Don't you understand, son? Son, don't you understand that? That appeal, brethren and sisters, coming from a father that he loved, ringing in the ears of flesh, would have been a powerful one. This stripling was only 16, say, to 16 to 20. He was near 40. Why should he give the throne to him? Never entertained the thought. And Jonathan never deviated, brethren and sisters, in the first of Samuel 23, at the last time that he saw him. The last time he saw Jonathan, or saw David rather, in the first of Samuel 23 and verse 16, it says, And, Saul's son, and Jonathan Saul's son arose and went to David into the wood and strengthened his hand in God. And he said unto him, Fear not, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find thee, and thou shalt be king over Israel, and I shall be next unto thee. And that also Saul my father knoweth. And they two made a covenant before Yahweh, and David abode in the wood, and Jonathan went to his house, and that was the last time they ever saw each other, brethren and sisters. And what a wonderful thing. But there was the exhortation of his father to wake up to bring to himself. So he had a bigger position in the ecclesia. If he'd run down his brother, if he'd only have to whisper a few words here and there, bring him to heel, why, he had the world at his feet. 
and he had the right to it. Foolish boy. But Jonathan went down into the woods and his father was hunting David into the wood of Ziph, brothers and sisters. Left his father's camp. His father couldn't find David. Jonathan knew where he was. Never lost sight of him. Could pinpoint every movement that he made because of the intelligence that went between the two of them. They never lost contact with each other. And you can see Jonathan in the wood of Ziph with David meeting and embracing in that wood, brethren and sisters. And the big man, Jonathan, a really big man, he won't find you, son. He won't find you. His strength in your hand is God. You're the next king. And I'm going to be next to you. Would to God we had in the ecclesia brethren, brethren of that calibre. Would to God we had brethren of that calibre that esteemed every man better than himself. They're really big men, brothers and sisters. They are big men. And no wonder they loved each other. And you know the best way to win the affection of your brethren and sisters You'll never fail is to take second place. You put that into practice and see where it gets you. Then you're a lot of friends. Never be afraid of it. And even though according to this life, you may feel that you have the credentials. Never be afraid to esteem your brother higher than yourself, brothers and sisters. Never be afraid to do that. And the love that will develop as a result of that will be something that you'll never understand. If David and Jonathan couldn't understand it, it was past the love of women. It was past mere emotions. They went quite beyond that and their soul became knit together. Because Jonathan was an enormous man, brethren and sisters. He was one of those big people who was able to give in. And you know, that's a difficult thing. And when you get men who are in position and who have gained the plaudits of the crowd that are in the shadow of the throne, brethren and sisters, it's a difficult thing. It's a very difficult thing. And you start talking about the numbers of study classes and the way people come to certain special efforts and the amount of tape recorders that were there, and of the reports that come from other people, all of which is excellent to build up the image of the flesh, all of which is calculated to cause this fellow or other fellow to think they're a cut above everybody. Do a little bit of sober thinking, and it's not difficult to esteem every man better than yourself. Don't do that thinking, and you'll go the way of Saul. And tonight we want to go home, don't we? With the character of Jonathan before us, brothers and sisters. Saul will never find you, David. Strengthen your hand in God. And you're going to be king. No doubt about that at all. And I want to be second to you. And they made a covenant on that basis and they parted and they never saw each other again. And Jonathan died right next to his father. They were not divided in death. And although he was loyal to his father, brethren and sisters, the very loyalty he showed to his father was loyalty to Yahweh. I believe that. Because if David could have been allowed to show the same loyalty, he would have done precisely what Jonathan would have done. Because he constantly said that Saul was Yahweh's anointed. And it was David's vote that Jonathan should follow his father and not him. And Jonathan knew that. And between the two of them, there was that bond, that bond of thinking. And the spirit of Yahweh was on the two of them and brought them together as the spirit of Yahweh drove Saul and David apart. And this, brothers and sisters, of course, is the opening phase of the life of David. And from here we want to follow him as he becomes exiled from the king, as he is driven into the land of the enemy, as he comes to glory, as he falls into sin, and as he finally emerges as the one in whom the spirit of God has spoke and the one who was, brothers and sisters, a man after God's own heart.